Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Last week we began our study of of Abraham, a man who was called by God and given truly remarkable promises. He's promised a a land, a, a beautiful land flowing with milk and honey, a productive land, and that he would have a family that would populate that land and not just stay as a family, but would actually become a great nation. And that Abraham himself personally would be blessed, but also he would become a blessing to all of the nations. And what's so remarkable about these promises is that they were given to Abraham not because he was the most deserving, but simply because of the grace of God. Abraham himself was born in Ur of the Chaldeans. He was raised as an idolater, most likely a a worshiper of the moon god. And yet God reached out to him and initiated with him and pursued him and called Abraham to himself. The New Testament tells us that's actually a picture of the gospel. We're dead in our transgressions and God initiates with us. We can't find our way back to God. We don't really even have an inclination to do so. And yet God has sent his son to die for our sins and to give us life that lasts forever. Just as God initiated with Abraham, God has initiated with us. And how do we respond? We're told respond in faith, believe, trust, accept God's gift. And that's what Abraham did. He received the promises by faith. And then he stepped out in faith and obeyed God. Left his friends and his homeland, probably much of his property, the culture he was familiar with, and followed God. Hebrews chapter 11 sums up his response like this. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. He just went. But if we only read the book of Hebrews, we would get an incomplete picture of Abraham's life because Abraham's faith was not perfect, was it? Uh, He took a, a big, bold step of faith, but then he also stumbled and fell many times. And what I love about the biblical record of the characters who are heroes of the faith is that they're not perfect. Abraham was not perfect. Moses was not perfect. David certainly was not perfect. Prophets were not perfect. They're people that we really can relate to. This week I found a great quote by Donald Gray Barnhouse. He said, no perfect feet walk the path of faith. No perfect, perfect feet walk the path of faith. There's a lot we can learn from Abraham's faith, but there's also a lot that we can learn from Abraham's failures. What we're going to see this morning as we look at four of Abraham's major failures in his life is that his problem was not that he, he walked away from God, that he denied God or he denied his faith, but he simply forgot God. He didn't seek God first when he was in the midst of trials and testing and tribulation He relied upon himself and his own resources to solve his problems rather than going to God. And as a result, he failed. He tripped and he fell. So I want us to look at four of these failures and see what we can learn from Abraham's life, beginning in chapter 12 and verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Abraham took an incredible step of faith to leave not knowing where he was going. And when he entered into the promised land, he continued to exercise faith. Everywhere that he went, he built an altar. In the midst of of pagan, hostile, Canaanite culture, he built altars to the one true God, and he proclaimed God, he worshiped God in front of these people and showed them the way to worship. 
And yet after he's been in the promised land for a while, he begins to realize this is a rough place to live. It's a hard place to live. It's, it's rocky, it's dusty, it's dirty, it's dry. In fact, Abraham didn't receive the promise of the land. The only land that he received was land that he himself purchased. A small plot of land that he bought for himself with his own money. And instead, after 10 years, what he discovers is he can't even feed his family anymore. A drought hits the promised land. Everything dries up. And Abraham's afraid that he will die and that his family will die. And obviously, if he dies, the promise can't be fulfilled, right? So he has to come up with a plan to save himself. His plan is this. Go down to Egypt. This is a recent satellite photo of uh, both Egypt and Canaan, or the promised land, Israel. And what you'll notice is Egypt is very fertile. It's constantly watered by the Nile. It has this beautiful alluvial plain. In fact, in in ancient days, uh, Egypt almost always had food. Whenever there was a famine, where did people go? They went down to Egypt. You notice Canaan is brown. In particular, Abraham was just traveling through the Negev area. In the best of times, Israel is a hard place to live. It's got to get seasonal rains. It's got to get the right amount of rain at the right point in time. And then crops must be stored for an entire year or the people will starve. And so literally thousands of people were traveling from North Africa, from Canaan, from Syria, down into Egypt. Literally, everybody was doing it. And so Abraham reasons, this is the place to go. The promise can't be fulfilled if I starve and if my family starves, so I must feed my family. Where is their food? I will go to Egypt. From a human perspective, it's the perfect plan. The problem is it was not the will of God. And for the patriarchs, Egypt was a bad place. We know God had told him, Abraham, go to the land that I will show you. And God had not said, leave that land. They were not to go to Egypt unless and only until God specifically told them to go to Egypt. Let me illustrate. These are the words of God to Jacob in Genesis chapter 46. God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. In other words, Jacob had to be convinced that he should go to Egypt because Egypt was a bad place. Egypt was not within the will of God unless God specifically said, go down to Egypt. And God came to Jacob and he says, don't be afraid. At this point in time, for these purposes, this is my will, go to Egypt. But God had not told Abraham to go to Egypt. Instead, he went on his own. Why? Because he didn't consult the Lord. It says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25, there's a way that seems right to the man, but its end is the way of death. From a human perspective, Abraham's plan made perfect sense, but this is a verse we should memorize. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So does that mean we should never think or reason, or plan? No, absolutely not. God has given us minds. He's given us the capacity to reason and to think. The point is, put God first in all of your thoughts, in all of your words, in all of your deeds. Seek God first. 
There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And many times the path of faith is counterintuitive. It's not the most obvious plan. That's part of what it means to walk by faith. Giving God the opportunity to provide in ways that are unexpected, even miraculous at times. I will tell you, I struggle with this on a weekly basis. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to uh, go to my office, take up my key, open my door, and I'm going to begin to prepare next week's sermon. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to open my Bible, and I'm going to begin to make notes, and I'm going to make observations. I'm going to turn on my Bible program, and I'm going to do word searches. I'm going to take out my commentaries. I'm going to begin to study, study, study. And many, many times, I will begin that entire process, and I will have forgotten to ask God what God might want to say from his word to his people. And so literally on my computer, I have a note, and it says, pray first. And what's amazing is it's in a bright color, and it's nice and big, posted on my computer, and I still sit down in front of that and forget to go first to God and ask what God's plan might be. We are are always tempted in this way. We go through a trial, a tribulation, a struggle when we're afraid, when we wonder how we'll provide. What do we immediately do? We try to figure a way out rather than stopping in that moment and saying, God, what is your will? What happens for Abraham is his plan, unfortunately, really, for him actually begins to work. He goes down to Egypt. He goes to a place that has food. He needs food. He can provide for his family. But that unwillingness to seek God first sets him up for the next failure. And read with me now in chapter 12 and verse 11. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. Behold, let's state the obvious, he says. <laughs> you are amazing, okay? You're amazing. And when the Egyptians see you, They will say, this is his wife. They will kill me because you are so beautiful, but they'll let you live. So please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you, and then I may live on account of you. Abraham begins to draw near to Egypt, and all of a sudden it dawns on him, there may be a flaw in my plan. There's food down there, but they might kill me. And so it doesn't matter if I can eat, if I die... And if I'm killed, the promise can't be fulfilled, so he comes up with a plan. Let's lie, right? Because when we're in a difficult situation, one of the best ways out of it is make something up, right? And if that lie doesn't work, you add another lie, right? That's, I, I found a great quote by George Burns. He said, the secret to his success was, was learning uh, honesty. And he said, as soon as I learned how to fake that, I could accomplish anything, And it's not really actually a complete lie because they were related. And so he could technically say, yes, you're my sister. Although that relationship was really irrelevant given the fact that she was his wife. He says, let's lie. Why? Well, obviously to protect his own life. But there's something more going on there. Probably Abraham thinks it's the best way to protect Sarah's life too. This is how the, the culture worked. The Egyptians had no regard For foreign nations, particularly people like Abraham. He was a a wandering person. He was a a Bedouin. They considered him completely illiterate and uncultured, even though he wasn't. But that's how they considered people like Abraham. And he was a keeper of flocks, sheep, and so they had complete disregard for him. So a man like this comes in seeking food. It's, It's highly likely 
that an Egyptian might see his beautiful wife and say, I know how to get her. Kill him, take all of Abraham's stuff. On the other hand, culturally speaking, if a woman is unmarried and her father is not around, and someone wants to have that woman as a wife, then they have to go to the brother and seek permission. And so most likely Abraham reasons, well, if somebody comes to me and they find out I'm the brother, not the husband, then they'll ask permission and I can stall, delay, deny, and get us out of Egypt quickly. He didn't reckon on the fact that it would be Pharaoh himself that would want to take his wife, right? So Pharaoh doesn't even ask permission. Pharaoh just comes and he takes Sarah. Verse 14. Came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. In other words, Abram's plan worked, right? His life was spared, and he says here, please say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me. Verse 16 says, Abraham was treated well. He's given sheep and oxen and donkeys, even camels. Camels had just been domesticated. They were kind of like the status symbol of the day. He's got new female servants and slaves that are given to him and male servants and slaves. He's enriched by Pharaoh. He is treated well. He's kept alive. Sarai's kept alive. But he doesn't have his wife any longer, right? And his wife was part of the promise. It had not yet been explicitly stated that Sarai would be the one who would have the child, but they should have known because it is always the will of God from Genesis 2 onward that there would be one man, one woman for life. And so Sarai was part of the promise. Now, because of Abraham's fear, he has put the promise in jeopardy. What's going on here is Abraham is afraid of man because he's taken his eyes off of God. He's afraid of what man can do to him because he has forgotten God. And when we forget God and we don't keep God constantly in front of our eyes, his greatness, his power, the fact that there is no one like him, he is unparalleled. When we take our eyes off of God and his power, we begin to fear others around us and we fear our circumstances because our eyes are off of God. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. It's a great little study. I did it yesterday. Just type in fear of man. Over and over and over and over again in the Bible, we are warned, do not fear man. Do not trust in man. Do not trust in the strength of man. Do not trust in yourself. Don't trust in your own ingenuity, in your own power, in your own wealth, in your own cleverness. Trust in God. Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Again, does this mean we don't think and reason? No, absolutely not. What it means is we think about God's will first. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. God, what is your will? Guide me, and he will make your paths straight. Will the pathway forward be immediately clear? Not necessarily. But God will make his will clear. Will it be frightening to follow his will? Certainly, for Abraham it was from time to time. 
But God's will is always best. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Or as Jeremiah says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Abraham forgot God and he feared man. And now Abraham finds himself in a situation where he is, in fact, powerless. There's nothing that he can do against Pharaoh. And so God has to directly intervene to protect God's promise. Verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Notice at the end of verse 19, it says literally this. Here, wife, take, go. (laughs) Pharaoh says, here, wife, take, go, get out. And he surrounds Pharaoh and escorts him across the border. Get out. And what is tragic to note is that rather than being a blessing, Abraham has become a curse. God's will for Abram's life is that everywhere that he went, he would be a blessing. That he would draw people into faith in the one true God. Instead, Abram has brought a curse with him. He's brought plagues. A great commentary written by a man named Kent Hughes. He made this observation. Abram reigned silent under Pharaoh's reproach, uttering not a word. What could he say? He would build no altars in Egypt, neither would he proclaim the name of the Lord. Abram and his entourage humbly crept out of Egypt. Why? Because when we forget God, we fail. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. We forget God, we fail. However, our failings cannot undermine the promise of God. God steps in, God intervenes, and God is faithful to protect his promise. But this failure sets him up for the subsequent failure. I want you to turn to chapter 16 of Genesis. And what happens between Genesis 12 and 16 is really mostly good stuff. Uh, Abram graciously allows Lot to pick from Abram's promised land, and Lot picks the best land. He goes and he occupies. Then uh, there's a war. There's uh, warring factions down in the, the valley, and Lot's caught up in the middle of this. He's taken away his family, all of his goods. They're taken away as slaves. Abram hears about it, and he mounts his own internal army with his family, and he goes and defeats four kings. I mean, it's really a remarkable victory. And then on the way back, he has this interaction with Melchizedek that we're going to talk about next week, where, where he worships the Lord. And shortly after that, God appears to him in a vision and ratifies this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And he, he, he experiences a theophany in a, a burning torch. He sees the, the glory of God and God speaks to him from this and God reassures him of the promises. And he reminds Abraham that he doesn't need to fear. He says, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of man. But trust in me. And I read that and I, I see that. I think if I had a, a theophany, I'd never sin again. 
right? I mean, if I had a mountaintop like Moses or, you know, a burning bush like Moses had or this flaming torch and God audibly, I actually audibly heard the voice of God and saw the, the glory of God, I mean, that, then from that point on, I'm good, right? I, unfortunately, that doesn't guarantee Abraham's constant and continual success because he's still tested. God continues to test his faith and he's not immune to failure, Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Where do you think they picked up Hagar? A gift from Pharaoh. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. A gift from his previous failure is going to set him and Sarah up for their next failure. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. Now, obviously, the promise can't be fulfilled if Abram doesn't have a child. And so Sarai comes up with a plan. And in many ways, again, it makes perfect sense. They have been in the land 10 years. Sarai is now 75 years old. It would seem that she's beyond the time that she can bear a child. The logic, it's just, it's not there any longer. And obviously, Abram hasn't really been leading his family too well from time to time. And so Sarah steps in and she creates a plan. And from a human perspective, again, it's, it's a very reasonable plan. In fact, this is what they did commonly in this culture. In fact, in certain cultures in this area, it was actually the law of the land that if a wife couldn't have children, she was legally obligated to take one of her servants and elevate her to the status of wife and give her to her husband. In some places, this is the law of the land. This is convention. And when that woman had a child, that child would become child of the first wife. But if that slave got kind of uppity because she had had a child and the first wife had not, then she could be demoted back to a slave. It's common convention. But again, it's not the will of God. From Genesis 2 onward, the two shall become one flesh, one man, one woman for life. And so once again, they put the promise in jeopardy. Why? Because Sarah is is angry at God. She says, it's God who has prevented me from having a child. She's angry at God, and so she doesn't seek the will of God, and so she initiates a scheme to help God fulfill his promise because God is not coming through. What's going on in Abram's mind? Well, I can just imagine. His wife is angry. She's angry at God. She's angry at him. He's powerless. He's powerless. We don't do well when we're powerless as husbands. (laughs) We're made to fix problems. And there's a problem that comes up and we cannot fix it. It's frustrating. It's frightening. We don't know what to do. My my wife and I went through this. We had four years of infertility. And there were many times when we we were frustrated. We were impatient. We were sorrowful. We didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to comfort my wife. I was powerless to solve the problem. 
And most of the times, if I was wise, I said nothing. I just sit with her and hold her and acknowledge, I can't fix this. I can't fix this. Sometimes college guys will ask me, say, what what does spiritual leadership look like in a home? And I say, you know, a lot of times it just means don't exit. In the midst of a confusing situation where you think you should have all the answers, don't leave. Emotionally, physically, stay. And lead through the trial, lead through the pain by seeking God. Abraham has a moment to lead here and he doesn't. Instead, he abdicates his responsibility to lead in his home and Sarah takes the lead and comes up with a scheme apart from the will of God. I want you to notice the progression here. Chapter 16. So Sarah said to Abram, Abram, listen to Sarah. Sarah took Hagar. Sarah gave Hagar to her husband. Now notice the parallel with Genesis chapter 3. Eve said to Adam, Adam, listen to Eve. Eve took the fruit. Eve gave the fruit to her husband. The serpent came and tempted Eve, and Adam stood by passively. He did not interrupt. He did not protect. Eve succumbs to the temptation, takes the fruit, and gives it to Adam. And Adam doesn't stop at that moment and say no. He takes the fruit and he joins her. It's exactly the same vocabulary in Genesis chapter 3 and in Genesis chapter 16. The author wants us to see the pattern here. So what's the application? Husbands, never listen to your wives. I get in a lot of trouble for that. With at least 50% of the audience, and especially since my wife is here at the 11 o'clock service, that can't be the application. I don't just say that for pragmatic reasons, to uh, keep peace in my own home. That's not the point. Husbands, grant your wives honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Your co-heirs of the grace of life. The point is not don't listen to one another. The point is husbands, wives, go first to God. Sarah has an opportunity to take her pain to the Lord and let the Lord walk her through that pain. And the impatience and the frustration, instead, she blames God. Abram has an opportunity to lead his family through A confusing situation in which he does not have the answers. He does not have the solution. But he can take his family to the Lord to seek the Lord. But but he doesn't. And Sarai doesn't. And even after a child is born, they don't go back and seek the Lord. Notice what it says here in chapter 16, verse 4. It says, Abram went into Hagar and she conceived. In other words, the plan worked. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. That means regarded as small. It's actually the same word as in chapter 12, verse 3, for the curse. Why is she cursing Sarah? Because Sarah has regarded her as less than human. One commentator said they regarded her, Abram and Sarah regarded her, Hagar, as a soulless baby machine. And so she's bitter and she's angry. And now that she has the child, she looks down upon Sarah. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. She's mad at God. She's mad at Hagar. And now she's mad at Abram. It's your fault, Abram. But Abram said to Sarah, well, behold, your maid's in your power. Do what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly and she fled from her presence. 
Abraham, again, he could have intervened. He could have said, you know, we did wrong. We didn't seek God. We did wrong by Hagar. Let's ask her forgiveness. Hagar, we treated you as less than human. Please forgive us. Let's seek God together for a way out of this incredible, horrible mess that we have created. They don't do that. Instead, Sarai, in her anger, goes after Hagar, and she abuses her. So Hagar flees, runs away. Verse 7, it's now the angel of well, the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. That is, she is headed down through the Negev and back toward Egypt. She's going home. The Lord said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, you will bear a son. You shall na- call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And of course, Ishmael will be a blessing to everyone, right? Verse 12. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. Everyone's hand will be against him. He will live to the east of all of his brothers. He will live in opposition to God. He will live in opposition to his brothers. And because of their sin, now the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael have been in battle with one another for 4,000 years. Okay? Constant conflict brought into their home because they didn't seek God first. We, we fail when we forget God, when we launch out and create our own plan first. There is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. Fourth failure is in chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20 and verse 1. Now Abram journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kedesh and Shur. Then he journeyed in, sojourned in Gerar. And Abram said of Sarai, his wife, this plan worked so well before, she's my sister. She's 90 years old now, by the way. She is my sister. So Abimelech, because she was such a beautiful woman, he's the king of Gerar, he sent and he just took her away. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. They put the seed promise in jeopardy again, and so God must intervene. We don't even have time to go into how Sarah must have felt. When she's taken, not once, but twice. We don't have time to go into all the details of the story, but I want you to notice one thing again. Abram is not a blessing. Abram brings curse. All of Abimelech's household, there is infertility. They cannot have children. All of Abimelech's people, no one can have a child. He has, Abram's brought a curse on these people. Again, he doesn't set up an altar He doesn't proclaim the name of the Lord. His name is not exalted as great in front of Abimelech. His name is not exalted as great in front of Pharaoh. Instead, he's brought cursing instead of blessing. He fails to learn the lesson. He repeats the lesson over and over again. Again, from Kent Hughes, he says, Christian, are you contemplating an expediency To obtain what you imagine to be God's will in your most treasured relationship, in a friendship, in professional pursuit, in your career, in your education, in your ministry? If so, 
Take a deep breath, stand back, take some time, read God's word, think, pray, and obey the will of God. Let's take these lessons and apply them. Where do we go with this? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we will be tested. And so we need to be prepared. We'll be tested for a lifetime. God will continuously stretch and stretch and stretch your faith so that it can become stronger and stronger and stronger. And when we're in the midst of trials and tribulation, we become impatient. It's natural. We want it to end. We want a solution out. And what's very natural for us as well is to to try and find our own way out rather than stopping and seeking God and his will and setting his plan first in our lives. And so what I'd like for us to do is just to spend the last few moments together preparing ourselves. Okay? Just spend some time in prayer. I've noticed that particularly around the holiday season, uh, it's a very testing time. Students, it's our last Sunday with you. I know a lot of you are heading home. When you head home, for many of you, you're going to go back into old relationships with friends or family that can be really challenging. You're going to leave the structure that you have for your spiritual life here. You're going to have little or no structure when you go home. Uh, These relationships, uh, it's easy to get back in old patterns, maybe really testing and trying relationships. I want us to be aware of that. So I want us to pray for two things. First, spiritual discernment. We're going to spend some time praying for ourselves and those around us for spiritual discernment. As Jesus said, watch and pray. We're entering into a time when we could be tested and we should expect to be tested. When we're tested, will we go first to God? Let's pray for spiritual discernment. And then second, let's pray that we could be a powerful blessing. If we walk in the will of God, we will be a blessing. We can love people for Christ. We can serve them for Christ over the holidays. We may get to share the gospel of Christ over this Christmas holiday. Let's pray that we would be a blessing. Let's take a few moments and, and let's just silently, quietly pray. If you came with someone, husband, wife, or kids, or friend... Pray for yourself and then pray for those around you. And then I will close this in prayer. Father, I pray that as we enter into trials and and, uh, testing, that we would be aware of your presence. We would seek you and your will first. We would remember that we are are not alone. We are not alone. dependent upon simply our own resources. But you're a great God. You're not a small God. You're able to, to watch and see all that is happening in each of our lives at all times. And you know the best path forward. I pray, Father, we would be aware of you. We would seek you. I pray, Father, that during the season, we would be a blessing. I pray that as we walk consistently and deeply in your will, that, that we, would, we would be able to, to share the love of Christ in, in really practical, tangible ways, physical ways, as well as giving us opportunity to speak truth. I pray, Father, uh, that for those of us who have family that don't know your son Jesus, I pray that we might see some of them trust Christ during this holiday. I pray, Father, that we would be able to, to bring that blessing that came through Abraham, through Jesus, to them. Father, I ask you to guard and protect us from Satan's attacks. Through the power of your son, Jesus, it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, before you leave, um, I know some of you may be going through some, some deep trials right now at this point, or you may be 
uh, heading home. You might have some family or friends who don't know Jesus. Uh, if you would like for somebody to pray with you before you go out of here this morning, we've actually got several couples, some of our home church leaders and some of our other uh, folks who are uh, on staff who are going to be waiting down front. They'd love to uh, just spend some time talking with you, praying for you if you have a specific request. Okay? They're going to have a little name tag on, so that's how you can identify them. And they're willing uh, to be here with you and wait with you and pray with you and be available. Okay? Uh, students especially want to say, have a great holiday. We do pray for you over the holidays. God bless you, and may you be a blessing. Have a great day.